This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, everybody. This is Ren from Hong Kong. And with Catherine, Matt, and soon-to-be ex-predictions champion David Law, you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, Ren, I'm supposed to say thank you for giving us a nice introduction, but since you've made fun of me losing the predictions competition, not just losing it, I should say... Utterly humiliated by about 25 different people over the course of the last year. And yes, I am going to have to relinquish my crown uh, and stop wearing the T-shirt that I'm wearing right now, which says 2019 Predictions Champion. Anyway, Ren, thank you for your support. I'll try and get over it. Catherine, how are you doing? I am fine. Thank you very much. I enjoyed Ren's contribution to the show very much. Thank you, Ren. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, frankly, it wouldn't have mattered if you were backing us or not. She would have just been quite happy for you to start the show like that. Yeah, big fan uh, of Ren. Or anybody else. Big fan yeah, of Ren. Right. Okay, Matt Roberts, how are you? Uh, hopefully you're going to be nice to me. I'm fine, thank you, but I am keen to point out that you were actually beaten by 31 people, David. I've just pulled up our predictions leaderboard, and Ren was one of those. Sorry, David. Right, I mean... <laughs> I usually love your stats, but, you know, you can (laughs) shove them, frankly. Um, Right, let's talk about tennis today at the O2 Arena and get onto a better foot. Um, Because we have had a match that was much hyped tonight between Daniel Medvedev and Novak Djokovic, for obvious reasons. Djokovic, the world number one. Um, What is he, five-time champion? At, uh, yep. at the at the tour finals, four of them at the O2. Medvedev suddenly hitting a rich vein of form, winning Paris, winning very comfortably against Alexander Zverev a couple of days ago. Here they were facing off. And for six games, it was absolutely electric. And the, and the rallies were fabulous, um, pushing each other pillar to post. And suddenly, Dano Medvedev won 6-3, 6-2. Uh, in probably less than an hour later. So what happened? What was your read of of the match, Catherine? I mean, inside the stadium, talking to the pundits you have for Amazon Prime Video, what, what was the feel for you? I mean, very clearly, Medvedev played extremely well and now has, I think, the the confidence and belief that he can maintain that level against the top players I don't think he 
he has the the grains of self doubt that most young players um inevitably have regardless of their sort of baseline confidence level um and i think you know we we discussed this on whatsapp i sort of put the the fruits of our discussion to to both the pundits that we had in the studio after match we had uh, annabelle croft and uh, and greg rosedsky and um you know our, our i think our collective theory was that Djokovic was wanted to win that match. He wants to win this tournament, and he he played fine today. He came up against Edinil Medvedev that went toe to toe with him and was coming out on top. And I think it became pretty clear after five or six games that Djokovic was going to have to go deep into the trenches in order to contend tonight and. I don't think I don't think this would have been a conscious decision. I don't think though that he quite had the stomach for the the depth that would have been required. So I don't think it's as simple as oh, I didn't fancy it and you know tanked the match. I don't think that happened at all. I think Medvedev was exceptional. I think that Djokovic would have been a bit irked by somebody beating him at his own game. Um but I don't think Djokovic had the depths to go to tonight, and I and I I don't want to agree with myself of a few days ago, but that is what I'm about to do. I think had something like the year-end number one ranking potentially been on the line in the match tonight, I think perhaps those depths would have been available to him. Mm. Yeah, well, I think. We've seen this a few times, I feel, at the ATP Finals with Djokovic in the round-robin stages. And we didn't quite have time after the match. I was I suddenly thought, I really want to look up some of his results and see the years that he's gone all the way, but he's lost a, a round-robin match. Because I particularly remember one where he lost to Federer, when Federer was really struggling in that rivalry. Djokovic had been dominating him, and suddenly Federer got this win a few years ago at the ATP Finals in the round-robin stages. But then they met in the final and Djokovic crunched him. Um, different player altogether. And it's just that edge, isn't it? And I, I really don't think it's surprising. It's I feel like it's a really human thing. for for I think for a lot of players in a round-robin scenario, to just when you've not got that absolute jeopardy, but also when you consider just how much he has won how many grand slams he's won how many year end finals he's won when you've got to go into those deep waters that medvedev is dragging you into it's not like nadal in the us open final who's prepared to just give his last drop and we've seen it with djokovic in grand slam finals where he's prepared to just be carried off the court if he has to be this is not that um and I also think it does show a distinction between Nadal and and Djokovic, and probably Nadal and everybody, because he just doesn't have that sort of gear shift when it's not going when you when he's had a disappointment, when he's played well and he has a blow, he doesn't stop coming. Yeah, I mean Nadal stepping onto a tennis court is sort of a <laughs> a, a implicit agreement to go to whatever depths are required of him to try and win that tennis match 
I mean, no option and no other options are even on the table for him. But he is the exception, for sure. What were your feelings watching it, Matt? Well, I completely agree with everything you've said. I think there's got to be an explanation for Djokovic's record at this tournament over the last four or five years. The fact that he's not won it, even though he's sort of kept being the best player in the world during all those years, there's... There has to be something in that. And I, I do think it is a motivational thing, a, a thing that he's not quite prepared to dig in. And I think Round Robin probably does play a part in that, as you said, David. Um, I also felt like it was a little bit of a match-up thing, a little bit of a credit to Medvedev, because, as you said, Djokovic was playing really well for 40 minutes, hitting hitting the ball brilliantly. But Medvedev was staying with him and... I found something Tim Henman said in the commentary really interesting about how one of the qualities of greatness, in a way, is stubbornness. And I suppose the positive side of that, you would call it a belief in your own game, kind of trusting your own game. And I think for 40 minutes, Djokovic was playing his own game, but he was realizing that Medvedev was living with him and going toe-to-toe with him and kind of winning the majority of the long points was what Medvedev was doing. And I think that panicked Novak Djokovic a little bit. And then he started to use so many drop shots. And I'm really fascinated by the Djokovic drop shot at the moment. I was I found it really interesting in the Roland Garros final against Nadal. I think there's two ways of looking at it. You can you can think maybe it's him evolving his game, him developing his game, adding another layer. Possibly it is, but to me, it comes across more as a bailout. And that was what I think that was Greg Wazetsky's reading of it as well on, mm. on the prime coverage. And it's almost like he's, he's realized he's perhaps lost a little something or not quite able to go into the trenches with a Medvedev at the ATP finals or with a Nadal in the Roland Garros final. And he's kind of overcompensating by coming up with a drop shot that is actually making things worse. I mean, Medvedev got to all of them really easily, put them all away. And if I'm Medvedev, I think I want Djokovic to be drop-shotting me rather than being defiant and saying, right, come on then, I'm going to keep going toe-to-toe with you. I'm Novak Djokovic. I'm the world number one. It was almost like he just gave something away. And I think it probably is tied up with this motivation. He doesn't quite have it in him. But just, I find it really interesting. If, If they are to meet again... Djokovic is not out of this tournament. He can still get through the group. He could meet Medvedev again in the final. If that does happen, I'd be fascinated whether Djokovic has got the reserves to kind of put the drop shot away and say, no, I'm, I, I don't necessarily need it to beat you. I can beat you with my own game. I just need to dig in and do it. Um, yeah, it's absolutely, it's absolutely fascinating that how Djokovic's motivation affects how he plays, I would say. It was kind of my reading of the match. Makes me desperate to see them play over the best of five sets mm. of the Grand Slam again. Mm. And it, and I would love to see it at the Australian Open yes. because they played there two or three years ago when Medvedev was coming up, when he was really starting to make strides. Um, and they and, and Medvedev won the first round, won the first set rather. You know, absolutely just a gut-wrenching sort of muscle the muscles were screaming in both players because they were being pushed, sinew stretching rallies one after another. And I I think it was about 
170 degrees that day, was it? if I recall. And, yeah. and, and Medvedev won that first set, and he was a broken man after it. And, and Djokovic ended up winning quite easily after that. But you saw for a set how the matchup just was a, was really close. Stylistically, he could go toe-to-toe with him. He just couldn't stay with him for long enough. Um, and we've had a lot of, a lot's happened since then. I mean, they've played a number of three-set matches. Medvedev's been winning, winning them, uh, or winning a lot of them. And we haven't seen them play over the best of five. So with the the ultimate stakes for Djokovic to, to, to go for at a Grand Slam, and if you had a Medvedev like this, because what really strikes me is I don't think Medvedev could look fresher. He couldn't look mm. more up for it. He's absolutely bursting to get at, get at people at the moment. I, I think I'd probably make him the favorite for, for this title right now. The way he looks to me, he just looks so up for it. Everything, his appetite, he's ravenous for this title. And uh, and he's got energy to spare. Um, so I find that quite exciting because so often matches are just compromised by fatigue. Um, and, and that isn't the case right now. Mm. And I really do think Medvedev has developed physically since that match at the Australian Open that you're talking about. I I think he would be able to last with Djokovic now physically. And that's that's one of the things that I find so uh, refreshing about watching him. You know, it was, it was three all in this match. It was a physical match. A lot of other players, I would have been waiting for them to implode or fall apart against Djokovic. I, I don't want to... I mean, I'm going to. I, I don't want to single people out, but there are there are certain players... For example, the two alternates at this tournament. If Shapovalov or Berrettini had been playing that match against Djokovic, I would have expected them, their level to drop and Djokovic to kind of race away. But I didn't ever have that doubt about Medvedev. I just kind of trusted that he was ready for this challenge. And that's the other thing. The quote he gave before this match was, I like playing Djokovic. And I like the long rallies. I like the long rallies. You know, there's a bit of a masochist in there. There is. And it's refreshing to have someone who actually enjoys that challenge and is willing to embrace it. And Medvedev absolutely is that guy. This matchup um, and kind of a a couple of uh, head to heads of Novak Djokovic's. um, sort of put, uh, put a couple of my sort of. Um, assumptions about tennis and matchups in it throws them into question because the sort of the the perceived wisdom is that the the worst kind of matchup is two players that play the same way or sort of the least competitive matchup when one is just clearly better than the other the old Ferrer against Nadal adage you know, Ferrer never stood a chance against Nadal because it's kind of the same player, just with all due respect to, to Ferrer. Obviously, one is far superior. Djokovic's trickiest matchups, certainly latterly, the, you know, the ones that spring to mind to me are Medvedev and Roberto Bautista Agut. And that throws all of it into a bit of a spin for me. I can't quite make sense of it. But then I also think of, you know, Stan Wawrinka, who's caused Djokovic problems, even when Djokovic has been in his absolute prime. And that's that's a different kettle of fish altogether. That is somebody being aggressive and, and 
taking control of a rally and pulling the trigger earlier than than uh, and not wanting to get into the trenches. So I don't know. I don't know mm. what's up and what's down anymore. Yeah, no, it's mm. uh, the the same thought occurred to me that it perhaps shouldn't work stylistically, but it but it kind of does. But I think perhaps with Medvedev, the point is maybe Djokovic at the moment, sort of current Djokovic, isn't far superior to Medvedev in the same way mm. that a uh, Nadal always was far superior to Fred. I mean, of course, he's a superior player generally, but just perhaps at the moment they're they're quite close, perhaps. Mm. And I think maybe with Bautista Agu, their most interesting matches have been at the events which aren't the big events. I, th- I just think off the top of my head, didn't Bautista Agu beat him in Doha? D- Doha, yeah. And maybe Indian Wells or Miami. I think basically not the slams. And perhaps, mm. perhaps that's the point that maybe in those events, Djokovic hasn't quite been prepared to dig deep either. And he knows that he has to against someone like... Bautista Agu, he's not going to offer any any kind of let up. But mm, in those big events, Djokovic still gets him. I think they played in the Wimbledon semi final, didn't they, last year? And it was a bit of a struggle, but Djokovic got through it and he, he did dig deep. Um, he which, does which, he does peak now, Djokovic. It's, it's, I was I was going to say that. I mean that 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 sort of sub theory you've just posited feeds into the broader theory about Djokovic mm. and, and motivation, mm. doesn't it? He's also learned how to win when he's kind of hanging on at the slams. If you yeah. think of that team final uh, that he won at the Australian Open when, you know, you could easily have expected that momentum-wise that was going to end up going against him, but he just about got over the line. And and then, of course, the Wimbledon final against Federer when really he he, he felt second best on the day, but he ended up winning. Um, so... It's it the next stage of his career. Obviously, we've we've got a lot going on in the world at the moment. But the ne- the next stage of his career, when those matches and those big finals take place, it's just I find his career really interesting now. Particularly as he's he's still got some considerable daylight to make up with Federer and Nadal. There's three Grand Slams between them. He's got to find. I mean, there's the kind of that assumption that, oh, you know, he's younger than the others and he's just, when he plays his best, he's still the best. And I think that the, I still think he plays immaculate tennis. He's beautiful to to watch in terms of his just how functional everything is and his knowledge of his own game and all that sort of thing. But You've made it sound so sexy, David. (laughs) Beautiful to watch in terms of how functional it is. Well, it just feels like there's, there's no weakness and and I and he just looks pristine. Even even the way he's dressed, like today, he just everything was so neat, and yet he gets to three. All. Unlike Medvedev, yeah, unlike Medvedev. Oh my god, he was a mess today, wasn't he? I mean, his hair's all over the place. He's ripping off pieces of plaster from, yeah, that from was his, the inside gross. of his legs, and he's chucking them over the side, and he just looks dishevelled. Um, but uh, I, I, by the way, I got a set wrong. It was to, the second set, wasn't it, that uh, that Medvedev won against Djokovic in that Australian Open match mm. in 2019? Seven six, seven five, and a tie break, and then he lost the next two, if, six two, six three. If but. we're correcting ourselves, can I say received wisdom, not perceived wisdom? The second <laughs> it came out of my mouth, I thought that's not right, but I can't think of, <laughs> think of what is right because it's been a long Catherine's day. Been on the telly for about twelve hours again, and we've just uh, been not doing that. I guess one thing I would say is that Djokovic hasn't been having 
these struggles in the slams. I mean, he's not he's not won the two slams since since the resumption of tennis, but it hasn't been because he's um, lost to one of these younger generation. I do think Team and Medvedev are closing the gap, but it it has felt like the ATP Finals has been this kind of slightly strange outlier at the end of the last few seasons, where with Dimitrov winning and then Zverev and then Sitsipas kind of set us up for this changing of the guard moment going into the new year and it just hasn't happened at all I mean Federer Djokovic and Djokovic have won the last three Australian Open so and again I think that feeds into the broader theory of motivation and and Novak Djokovic's ability to peak and I don't know I guess I guess one of Djokovic's greatest skills in these five sets is he, he knows just how to win over five sets he can have energy drops but he can still come through them and I I still think he's got that ability. So whether all these, whether these little struggles and motivation problems do translate to the slams, I, I just don't necessarily think they will. But I do think the broader point is that Team and Medvedev are playing really good tennis, and if they can start stepping up at the slams, then yeah, three is three is a big gap for for Djokovic still. I, I also still wonder whether at some point all of the the politics in tennis, off the court, that Djokovic involves himself in, whether it's going to catch up to him. Just the energy levels that it takes. So far, he's managed to compartmentalise and juggle and do both. Um, throw his energies into trying to organise the the PTPA, the Professional Tennis Players Association, that was this breakaway union that he, he talked about at the US Open, organised the big photo on the on the court with 50-odd players. Well, um, photo. Okay, a photo. Um, but I mean, you know, it's it's a lot of energy and he's constantly being asked about it. And when he's asked about it, his answers are 10 minutes long. You know, he's going into massive, great depth and detail. And and I just feel like the mental energy that that takes is, is, is significant. And Goran Ivanisovic and Marion Vida, his two coaches, do not think he should be exhausting himself at all of that. But it, it clearly means something to him and he's carried on doing it. And I just wonder whether at some point it's going to catch up to him on the court. And there's no sign that he intends to not be involved with the politics of the sport. We we, we read out last night's tweet from Simon Briggs about how he was on the list of nominees alongside Vasek Pospisil to rejoin the ATP Player Council, which um, with the elections coming up, and, and I think that's due to be decided at the start of the year. He came out firing in his press conference today, and he wasn't happy with with what was reported. Um, he was he gave a very very long detailed answer, um, but the gist of it was that he said, I did not apply to be on the ATP Player Council. I was nominated by a group of players. Um, no suggestion that he's turned down that nomination, um, but he, it sounds as though he's yeah he's honoured to be uh, nominated for it. And he doesn't see any conflict of interests, he said, between the fact that he's tried to set up a separate players' union and is looking at going back on the Player Council of the actual ATP tour. Um, but that he's been told, I think today, that the ATP board had made the decision that you can't do both, that you can't be organising this separate entity and be on the council at the same time, which, I mean, to me, I just assumed that that was 
the was a given in as much as the the other council members had had forced them to resign hadn't they really they they'd said you know if you're going to do this you've got to get off the council um so he sounded pretty miffed um that he had been told this by the ATP board and that he'd got to go back and him and Vashit Pospisil have, have got to regroup was was really what he said and think again and decide what their next moves are going to be um but i don't sense any desire to move away from the politics in the game Catherine and i just i just wonder at some point here he is what are you 33 um i just wonder when that that could end up catching up to him on the court i would make two points i think it's interesting because we always think that it hasn't caught up with him but we don't actually have any sort of sample of him not being involved so we don't actually know how he would be doing if he if he wasn't involved it it, it, it does strike me sometimes that he's been the best player for the last 10 years how is he not kind of already in the lead of of the grand slams would he be doing even better if he didn't have everything else going on and i think that's maybe the point that goran ivanisevic and marian vida and janko tipzarovic told you on in your interview with him last year on the podcast david i think they maybe think that it is harming him even though we we so often think that he can compartmentalize and still and of, of course he is still winning loads of slams and winning loads of tournaments while doing it but maybe the point is could he be doing even better but i do think there is also the point that needs to be made that it's it's part of who he is it's it's ingrained in him to get involved in the politics and do what he perceives to be right and i i think it kind of goes hand in hand with his with his tennis in that respect i'm not necessarily sure he would have the same fire or interest to be playing tennis if he wasn't also involving himself in loads of other um, activities and one of them being the politics so I think it might end up kind of lengthening his career in a way and him wanting to keep keep involved in politics and keep playing and keep doing the two things hand in hand but whether it actually is impacting his on-court performance I just think it's it's impossible to say really. Mm. It's like asking would, would David Law sort of you know be less stressed and more productive if he got more sleep and didn't have ideas at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> redundant question because i mean how many years have you said to me just have a holiday this time mm. you know and don't have ideas in the middle of it and start messaging us um <laughs> do try yeah. <laughs> but anyway yeah no i take your point it's very interesting um so Daniel Medvedev is through. He's top of the group. He's into the semi-finals. Novak Djokovic will now face Alexander Zverev in a straight shootout, won't he, on uh, on Friday? Yes, we like straight shootouts where there is no suggestion that uh, uh, percentage of games calculations will be taking place. Yeah, Catherine Whitaker doesn't have to explain scenarios. <laughs> uh, it's so. not me that does it. I I'm busy there, you know, trying to trying to simplify things for the viewer and saying I'll I'll try and not complicate things for you. And, and in wades Greg with his calculator. <laughs> 
<laughs> Go on, Greg. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nice. So, yeah, very straightforward because Verev beat Diego Schwartzman today, 6-3, Now, I watched the first few games of that match. Um, I think there was an early break for Schwartzman. Then Zverev got on top, ran away with it, um, and was a breakup in the second set. At this sort of point, my eight-year-old son said, Dad, will you come out in the rain to the basketball court over the field and play with me? And I said, all right, son. Yeah, come on. Let's go. And, uh, and I ran around after him for about an hour um, and uh, and got beaten heavily on basketball court by somebody I'm at least three foot How taller than. How does that happen, David? Well, it did, all right? It did. Just that, leave it. That shouldn't be um, happening. And on the way back home, we uh, we walked past his grandparents' house and uh, and saw them through the window. And um, and my mother shouted out through this this window, uh, "Diego Schwartzman back in it." <laughs> and I'm thinking, how how on earth is that possible? I mean, I could not imagine how Schwartzman could be. I was trying to. Is she under, misunderstood that? And it turned out Schwartzman had won the second set. So what did happen for people that saw the match? What happened? Well, I I think sort of Ale- Alexander Zverev happened. You know, the, the, I was sort of waiting for that. What I was waiting for what happened to happen, um, which was Zverev kind of getting into a, a winning position and kind of choking it away a little bit, um, because that kind of is what happened. I know it doesn't happen week in week out. There were the back to back weeks in Cologne, and I know he. He absolutely hammered Diego Schwartzman in, was it Cologne or Cologne the sequel? The sequel. The sequel, the final of the sequel. Um, but given everything that was at stake today, um, and I think for, for both players, but perhaps even more so for Zverev, there really was a lot at stake today. He He wants to win this title. He certainly wants to make it out of the group. Um, and he... Certainly, I think, felt like he had a point to prove after his opening match against Medvedev when he was squarely outplayed. Um, so I was kind of waiting for the stumbling block. And I think Diego Schwartzman is kind of the nightmare opponent if you're if you're having a wobble because he, he keeps you honest. He will he will ask you the question. Um, and and yeah, I, th- I think Zverev had his inevitable inevitable wobble I, I it is to his credit that he curtailed that wobble because I think he actually very easily could have could have lost that match um it looked at, at the start of the third set like it was going Schwartzman's way it was it was funny I, I I sort of said under my breath in the in the prime studio when we were watching uh, at the start of the third set was it break up Schwartzman at the start of the third or was it there were just some tight Don't think so tight games. tight games yeah tight games that started third and I said it looks like Schwartzman's got got faster how can he possibly have got faster it must just be me and uh, it was Daniela and uh, and Greg in the studio at the time they both said oh yeah that happens that happens when you when you feel like things are going well and you get energized and you've got a, a adrenaline you you do physically get faster um, so I was pleased that hmm. you know I wasn't just getting carried away on the on the wave of Diego Schwartzman the roadrunner because it the, the latter stages of that second set and and 
early stages of the third. Maybe it's just because I've been starved of live tennis. I haven't seen Diego Schwartzman run in the flesh for a while, but I was I could practically see the see the smoke rising from the courts. It was yeah, it was really something. That's great. Um, so Schwartzman's out. He can't get through, uh, or I don't think he can. Can he? No, he can't get through. He's waxed lyrical uh, so- about his. About his foot speed. Schwartzman's out. So that's, <laughs> that's irrelevant. Moving on. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was a moment for Catherine <laughs> to enjoy uh, and savor Diego doing his thing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking. And I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So, after that, we, we we knew then certainly once Medvedev had won the way he had that it would be Zverev against Djokovic. There's been no further developments to the allegations of Olya Sharipova uh, over the last uh, couple of days, and um, obviously those allegations that uh, that we've we've discussed in the past, in which uh, Alexander Zverev has denied. There was a press conference with Daniel Medvedev tonight, in which he was asked about that case uh, that those allegations matt you were in that press conference what what happened yeah it was uh ben rothenberg who asked the question obviously the one who wrote the story about olga in in racket magazine and he said that he's working on another story about olga sharipova and he asked medvedev whether he was aware of the story what he thought about the story and um about whether he knew or knows Olga, um, because there was some there was some speculation that uh, Olga was friends with Medvedev's wife, 
Anyway, Medvedev was a little bit taken aback, I think, by the question. But the first thing he said was that he um, is against abuse in all forms, especially domestic abuse. That was the first thing he said. Uh, and then he kind of didn't fully answer the rest of the question. He did say that his wife does know Olga Sharipova. He knows her less. Um, and then Ben followed up asking whether he thinks the ATP should be investigating this case. And he he didn't answer that. He said, I, I don't know the rules. Um, t- it's tough for me to say. I don't know, basically. Um, but, but it does seem like there's more more of that story to come quite soon hmm. okay thanks uh, for filling us in on that matt um we've also had a couple of doubles matches today i'm not exactly sure where it leaves the groups so uh, matt, i don't know whether either of you can can help me with this but i can tell you the scores and they were i mean they were dramatic matches marcel granoyes and horacio zabayas beating the top seeds mate pavic and bruno suarez seven six six seven 10-8 and then arguably even a more dramatic match oh it was one which, uh, which, was. I, which I, I saw quite a bit of this actually uh, in, in the final set tie break Jürgen Meltzer and Roger uh, Edouard Roger Vasselin beating John Pierce and Michael Venus 2-6 7-6 12-10 and Pierce and Venus had match point didn't they they had five of them David did they and then on Meltzer and Roger Vasselin's first match point, uh, Michael Venus uh, fired an overhead slam into the net. Oh, dear. After having had a pretty catastrophic second set tie break, Michael Venus. I mean, they were great, Piers and Venus, for the first set. Uh, and Jürgen Meltzer, as he admitted in his post-match interview, said he'd had an absolute stinker and it really looked like Piers and Venus were, you know, jogging on to the finish line. And then suddenly they're in a second set tie break and I'm not sure the John Piers michael Venus partnership is going to survive <laughs> the, that result. I mean... Maybe that's how they roll, but the body language afterwards. I know they're not allowed to hug, but I I didn't witness any kind of socially dis- socially distant equivalent of a hug. Um, I mean, there wasn't even eye contact. It was bad. It was really, really bad. Um, but um, all four teams in that group still have a chance to qualify for the semi-finals. Wow. Even, so they'll be playing Friday, won't they? Yes. Yeah, all four teams. Even the team that is yet to get a win. Is there a team that's yet to get a yeah, win? Yeah, which is yeah. Piers and Venus. Which is Piers and Venus. Oh, whoops, sorry. I was I was trying to, you know, throw them a bone. <laughs> um, yes. So you've got uh, Zabayos, Granoyas, who've got two wins at the top of the group. You've got Piers and Venus at the bottom, who've got no wins. Um, and the other two teams who one and one, and everyone's in with a chance. So mm. that's so fun. The world, the world number one ranking is on the line, isn't it? Yes. This week, for all eight teams. For all eight teams, mm. that's amazing. I've you, never ever heard of anything like that before. Yeah, an eight-way race in an event for a for a world number one position. I mean, no one's checked this, but I I'm going to say that has never happened before. 
Um, That's really cool. And you can feel the stakes. You can feel it. I mean, there, there is some choking happening, and I think it's very understandable. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely real. Oh, good. Uh, right, well, tomorrow we've got uh, Wesley Kuhlhoff and Nikola Mektic starting things off at 12. They're up against Lukas Kubot and Marcella Mello. Uh, then it is basically a dead rubber, isn't it, in the singles, Dominic Team against Andre Rublev, because yeah. Team is already through. Unfortunately, both Ru- of those are dead rubbers. Right, okay. So, <laughs> and, and Team is a- also not only through, but guaranteed to finish top of the group. Yep. So it's right. completely okay. it's completely nothing on it at all. So join Medvedev us at eleven forty five AM for build up <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to that day session. I'm having a line. Uh, I'm gonna have my nap around then. Uh so, so uh, uh that means that team will face either Djokovic or Zverev then, won't he? And yes. Medvedev will face either Nadal or Tsitsipas yes. in the semis. all of which because... any option there sounds great. Yeah, I mean, because so, that's in the afternoon tomorrow, it's Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury against Kevin Kraviets and Andreas Mies. Oh, that's going to be tense. What's, is it, is it well, winner-takes-all? It, it, yeah, that? it's winner-takes-all. Oh, yeah. excellent. And then it's winner-takes-all. I mean, Nadal Tsitsipas, mm. that is a match I'm really up for. Mm. tomorrow night aren't you yes what's the head-to-head like it is 5-1 to nadal is it yeah oh i thought i thought sitsabas had had more success than no that. his his only win was against him on clay in madrid last year um yeah I've, I've been doing a bit of a deep dive into their head-to-head today and i was i was reminded of of some classic sitsabas quotes because it was after the uh, they were matching the Australian Open semi-finals in 2019, where Sitsipas left the court confused and be- kind of bewildered. Uh, he said, "I have no idea what I can take from that match. I feel very strange. <laughs> it's a very weird feeling, almost like I couldn't play any better. He plays a different game style than the rest of the players. He has this talent that no one else has. I've never seen a player play like this. He makes you play bad. Today, I felt like a two-meter ten guy that can't move on the court. I mean, he was he was in a spin after that match. It, it's like he was a, an alien dropped onto earth mm. he'd never seen Rafael Nadal yeah, before was, and he played him before it was so bizarre <laughs> and I, do, I do remember once I went to a press conference and I asked him who yes was the toughest of the three the big three and he just with an most most of them were hedging their bets within a, an instant he'd said oh Nadal mm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah exactly and then they obviously played at the ATP finals last year and Sitsipas, I think, had already qualified. So he gave that quote where he said, I wanted to win, but I probably wasn't willing to die on the court for that. Oh, where was that quote when we were having the Djokovic chat? We should have repurposed it. Mm, yes. But, you know, I mean, let's, edit, so let's edit out the first 20 minutes of the chat and just <laughs> replace it with. He probably just wasn't prepared to die on the court today. Oh, I, I commentated on that match and I don't remember too much about it. Oh, it was epic. Yeah, it was 7-5 in the third for Nadal. Oh, wow. Um, but, and I d- but I don't think Sitsipas had a single break point. 
And, and one of the things he's really, in all of his quotes after playing the dial, is he can't get a read on his serve at all and can't figure it out. Um, so that's something to look out for, I suppose. But based on their levels this week, I'm picking the dial to win. Based on all of that mm. and their levels, I feel quite strongly about that. You know Sitsipas is lying in bed right now, probably very close to me because we're all in this hotel. <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, I've made it sound weird, like Sitsipas would do. Um, you know he's lying in bed right now, sort of Queen's Gambit style, with Nadal serves whizzing before his eyes, trying desperately to figure out the winning formula. And probably what's Queen's Gambit? I'm saving that for after the ATP Finals. You, oh, you've, oh, it's a it's a new show that's just dropped on Netflix, David, that everyone's talking about. It's about... Um, Everyone except me. <laughs> it's about a chess prodigy in the... Well, don't give it away. I, I, I want to watch it now. I don't think that is giving it I, away. That is... Is it not? Definitely not a spoiler, David. <laughs> okay. That's like saying Titanic's right. about a boat. <laughs> okay, then. Um, yeah. Chess, female chess prodigy in the 50s and 60s. and But she's also um, sort of addicted to tranquilizers. And when she, when she lies in bed at night, she has visions, sort of drug-induced visions of chess moves and plays. Blimey. That's, well, this that has gone good. well, hasn't it? I've picked, picked the right audience for this analogy. Well done, me. <laughs> yeah. Well, just checking. Um, <laughs> At least I knew what it couple, was. <laughs> yeah. A couple, couple of things before we, uh, we finish. Um, one is I really, really enjoyed the the chat that Catherine you had with uh, Tim Hemmen and Greg Rosetsky in the Prime Video Studio because it's rare that you get those two together. I mean, they're, they're they're part of your coverage a lot, but they're often with another another pundit. And of course, they've got such rich history, haven't they? Both as as rivals, you know, they were head to head all the way through their careers, really, as British players and as teammates. I mean, they were a quite fantastic doubles team which was always slightly odd because they couldn't be more different as blokes, really, could they? And yet when they would get on court, they just seemed to click. Yeah, which they they both absolutely said that 100%. They were aware how formidable a team they were at the time. And, you know, I, I asked them why they didn't play more together. It seems seems to me that, you know, they could have... They, you know, they could have won Olympic golds and Grand Slam titles, and you know the answer was the focus was a hundred percent on singles for both of them. They wanted to win Olympic golds and Grand Slam titles in singles, and they saw it as as a trade off. Um, they said, you know, things were different to the to the John McEnroe era. Um, it wasn't considered viable to to play top level singles and doubles, but then they did. Greg, in particular, you know, did ad- admit to to a slight regret about that. I think. Well, so I think they both admitted to or conceded that if they were in that position now, they perhaps would consider playing more doubles together. And and Greg actually said he took me aback a bit by um, by saying he wished that they had played Wimbledon together as a team late on in their careers, maybe in the final year. I don't think they retired. I mean, they retired pretty close together, didn't they? Um, 
but yeah, in the twilight of their careers, they could have had a tilt at the Wimbledon doubles title together. And I felt sort of a a pang at my heartstrings, actually, hearing him mm. say that. I wanted to get in a time machine and give them the opportunity to do that. Um, and yeah, just more pathos. Yeah, they, they were saying that they were 13 and 1. 13 wins, just the one defeat. Although Greg thought it was 9 and 1. Well, I think it was 9 and 1 in the Davis Cup, ah. but they also played, and I was at the tournament in 1998. It was my second ever tournament as an ATP communications manager in 1998 at, at Battersea Park, where uh, it was a, a rather smaller tent that they had up there. I mean, it, it, was, it was the tent in the park. Uh, and uh, they they teamed up and won the doubles together. Um, and, I, and I always remember that tournament because when the wind really blew, and my word, did it blow in February in 1998, it felt like the tent was about to come down that we were in. Um, these the the sort of rafters above were were sort of bowing towards us, and uh, and it was a little noisy. Tim said yeah. Tim said to me today as he as he sat down in the chair, he said, "Oh, you're still doing the podcast with with David Law?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "Send him my regards," and I said, "What kind of regards, Tim? Kind regards, warm regards?" And he said, "Hmm, finest regards." <laughs> Blimey. You know, it was never like that with me when we were in the 20 years and, 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 then, he, and then he said, oh, where, whereabouts is he? And I said, oh, he's in Solihull, you know, Dan Evans land. And then he went off on one about some junior tournament he used to play um, in Solihull. It was apparently sort of the best tournament that's ever happened. Of course it was. <laughs> never talked about that before, David. Well, I didn't get in. Um, Do you know what he's anyway. talking about? No. I haven't got I haven't got the foggiest. <laughs> oh. uh, but anyway, it sounded great. You're missing out. Yeah, not so. I could have been a contender if I'd only known about that tournament and learnt how to play. I think. Anyway, I think if you're getting beaten at basketball by your eight year old son, you should just swerve sports altogether from now on, David. <laughs> this is, this podcast is brutal. <laughs> I'm gonna have a bit more of my beer. Right. Let's finish this podcast on a happy note uh, because I have just been given a preview copy of Simon Briggs's column for tomorrow, which um, which is a really really entertaining read. It's about the history of the ATP Finals when it was over the course of its lifetime at the O2 Arena, um, and it's it takes the the form of a nostalgic look back at it as a Swiss tournament, as a Swiss feel, and through the eyes of both Federer and all of the fans that would come in and uh, and watch, and also um, Stan Wawrinka, and it just it, it reminisces about that match that those two played in uh, in twenty fifteen, Wawrinka and Federer fourteen fourteen, and uh, and I'll just read you one paragraph. It says. The whole thing was brilliantly bizarre. Vavrinka had always been Federer's friendly, barrel-chested sidekick, Fozzy Bear to his Kermit. But here was Mirka, yelping out encouragement to her husband, just as Vavrinka was preparing to serve, then calling Vavrinka a crybaby when he complained to the chair umpire about the disruption. These were wonderful days. <laughs> Particularly for a reporter, as you said, he went on to say. But Simon every loved it. writing that piece. Yeah, 
You did. So mm. have a look at that in your uh, in your Telegraph website tomorrow. I, I've got one more bit of business, if you'll allow me the indulgence. Oh, well, it's actually indulging you because I, I've I've um, I've dragged out the Federer's volleys are okay debate just a little bit further. Oh, well done. Um, because uh, I had Tim and Greg in the studio for the build-up to uh, (laughs) to Djokovic and Medvedev tonight so I so I I was feeling playful and I said okay so if Djokovic is if Federer's volleys are okay what adjective are we using to describe Djokovic's volleys and Henman said less than okay and then he spent the first half an hour of his commentary regretting those words as Djokovic hit <laughs> wonderful them. volley after wonderful volley. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, OK, well, what about Medvedev's volleys then? And there was a very pregnant pause and he said, a lot of work to do. <laughs> He's been good value, actually, I have to say, on Prime mm. uh, so far this week, whereas, Tim Hemmen. Whereas Greg went <laughs> in the complete opposite direction and declared that Federer's volleys are top ten in the open era. Yeah. <laughs> no one was asking for that. <laughs> <laughs> Not even Matt Roberts wanted that. But anyway, uh, very entertaining. All right. Any shout-outs? Yes, of course. For Sapna Shah. Sapna, thank you very Hello, much for Sapna. your support. Sapna Shah, that's quite a you. You could be a you, you could be a celeb with that name. It's the alliteration, I guess, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Matthew Niger. All right, Matthew. Oh, like the like the country. Well, it has an e in it. Uh, two e's. It has an e before the i. I wasn't sure how to pronounce ah. it. Okay. Anyway, Matthew, great name. Mm. And Daniel Nichanian. Oh, hello. Top man, Daniel. Hello. Where's Daniel hello, from? Daniel. Do we know where Daniel's from? I have no further information on Daniel, I'm <laughs> Daniel, afraid. let us know where you're from, <laughs> and we'll, we'll come back to that on another occasion. Uh, but anyway, thank you so much for your support, all of you. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. And uh, Ren as well in the intro. Um, all people who have backed us so that we can... Uh, knock out all of these podcasts all year long um, which has been fantastic fun for us but a lot of work um, but wouldn't have it any other way we'll be launching our kickstarter on the 1st of december so a couple of weeks time um, so you can get uh, your intro if you'd like one or a shout out or support us any way you can Um, it's all appreciated and uh, yeah we'll be back with another daily edition of the tennis podcast tomorrow Catherine, go and get to bed Uh, matt you know Get, get to work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> get this thing on the road is what we got to say, and we'll be back with more tennis tomorrow. See you then. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.